as I uh, drove over this morning with Joe and Lynn, which I often do, uh, Lynn said, my practice now is not rushing. And uh, I, I just was thinking about that as I was sitting, that uh, that's, a really good ex- that's a really good practice, not rushing to do the next thing, because it piles up. And I think that... Uh, I've, I've been reading this book, as you know, I've been reading Fantasyland. And I'll talk about it some more probably today. But uh, it's really a sociological study of the Western psyche in the last you know, 500 years. Uh, actually, it's, the subtitle is How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating reading. It's, it's not fast because it's a, it's a big, thick book, which is rare these days, and it's got a lot of things to say. But really tracing the ability or the inability of Americans to differentiate between fact and fantasy and the increasing willingness to believe any old thing if you like it. You know, that uh, if, you, if it appeals to you as an idea, you say, I believe it, so it's true. And how did we get that way? But one of the things that he's... It's a sociological study of different changes in people's lives. Uh, for instance, last night, one of the things I read about was there didn't used to be to-do lists. Then there was a certain time, maybe in the 50s or 60s, that those, be, those began to appear in stationery stores. You could buy a to-do list and then fill it out and stick it... I mean, you've seen them to-do pick up laundry, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. Didn't have that before that, but all of a sudden that became... And he said that kind of thing would be based on the fantasy that it's good if you finish a certain number of tasks in a certain day. And it already introduces a level of stress into the life. I have to get this done. Now I did everything. Okay, phew. Before that, you did what you could, and then, you know, it was tomorrow. But... Uh, Or the other thing I read yesterday is before the 50s, uh, it was very unusual to find uh, uh, a woman over 50 who didn't have gray hair, because everybody had gray hair. And then after 50, but then it started to change. Now you look around and an amazing number of people do not have gray hair, not this... (laughs) Now, if you're, not, if you're one of the person who does not have gray hair, I don't, I don't want to be saying anything about you compared to other people, because I, incredibly, did not have any gray hair until I was 70. That's not true, of course, but I did not appear to have gray hair until I was 70. And then when I was 70, I decided, this is really ridiculous. So I decided if I made it, maybe it was even 75, who remembers, but at some point... I said, this is ridiculous. I'm old, and the rest of me looks old. And besides, gray is not bad. And old is not bad. So, voila. It doesn't mean, um, on the other hand, feel comfortable if you do not have gray hair because because you've enhanced that. Neither do I have rose-colored lips. I did that this morning with a little tube of stuff. (laughs) Nor are my eyelashes as long as they appear once I put on my... But 
they all have to do with the fantasy that I will be more attractive if I do that. It's, not, it's a benign fantasy, really. Pretty benign. <laughs> Pretty benign. We have some other fantasies that we've all, uh, like a to-do list, that's just an extra amount of stress in the mind. Or anything else that we believe. I was thinking yesterday, maybe that should have been the name of today's talk, that today's talk should be, uh, don't believe anything. The, the, ser- the sermon that the Buddha gave to the people of Kalama began, don't believe anything just because someone told you. Not even if that person's a good friend of yours. Not even if that person was renowned by other people as being a sage. Not even if you thought that person was really a Buddha. Don't believe anything just because people tell you. Try it for yourself and see if it's true. And if it's true, then you can declare, not that I believe it, but you can say, I know this to be true. Remember last week we talked about what do you know now for sure that you didn't know 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago? What do we actually know that we can... Then we don't have to say, I believe it anymore. We could say, I know that. I know this. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my teachers, no longer living, of blessed memory, thereby, therefore, the rabbi... Um, Zalman Shakta Shalomi said, he said, there are some people who know with a small K and some people who know with a big K. And they really know. And he said, he said, we are all working from we know a little bit to we know more and more and more. And they would say, really know. So what I wrote here for the name of today's talk is you cannot emphasize impermanence too much, is the name of today's talk. Remember last week we were saying these are the three things that the Buddha said you really had to appreciate. That's what you really had to know with a capital K. Nothing lasts. Everything is always in flux, always changing, in all the ways in that which that shapes your life. Like a lot of stuff, when we make a to-do list, we figure we're going to have time to do it. You know, we don't do one thing at a time, you know. It's a, a two weeks from Tuesday, pick up the glory cleaning or whatever. All based on, uh, you know, if I'm here two weeks from Tuesday, I'll go get the dry cleaning or whatever. Also, if it, there is no day but today and right now, then I really have to be sure that I have settled all my inside accounts with people. One of the things that I have in mind to try to remember to talk about today is this is the, oh, wait a minute, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is the eighth day of, oh, seventh day, whatever. Saturday is the tenth day uh, by by Hebrew counting, which is obviously off and it's a fiction, the world is 5,777 years old. 78. Oh, we went from 77 to 78. I thought we went to 77 to 76. Okay, 78. So 
there's of course all kinds of archaeological, paleontological, and other records that suggest otherwise. But <laughs> if you count biblical time, that's how long, how old the, light of the world is. It's very important for me to to celebrate. This is the birthday of the world, uh, even though I think of that as a metaphor, because it gives me a time to say once again. Have I attended to all my inside uh, accounts? Am I sure that there is no one on my list that I've put out of my heart? Is there no unreconciled relationship that I should heal before this coming Saturday? And to think about that as a teaching, not what actual year this is in, since the world began, but have I done my homework in terms of reconciling my heart to so I want to talk about that also today are there any people here who have not been here before ever on a Wednesday morning what's your name Miriam, Miriam. where do you live in uh, Tucson in Tucson who are you visiting Our... uh, my son Jonathan who's, yeah, who's there <laughs> who corrected the date <laughs> Uh, and uh, welcome. Who else is here? From what's your name? Karen. Karen. And where do you live? In Larkspur. Oh, you're right nearby. Well, welcome. Please come again. Everybody else is. There you go. My name is Heike. I'm from Germany. Where are you from, Heike? From Germany. But where in Germany? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your first name is Heike. Uh, my Dutch friend has her last name is Heike. Yeah, yeah. With a J in the middle. H-E-J-K. H-E-I-J-K-E. Is that your name? H-E-I-K-E, yes. Okay. I have bicycled around in that area. Not recently, decades ago, but I have. It's lovely. So I wanted to see where people had come from because uh, normally if Ace and Brahmani are here, Ace, if I don't say, now turn around and say hello to all the people near you and welcome them to the class. So now turn around and say hello to all the people near you, especially the people who I just here knew and tell them... You have everybody to tell them. We came together. <laughs> it's always nicer to talk to people, isn't it? A little bit, get the sense that the people next to you are 
now a little bit known to you. So particularly, uh, I need to tell you that uh, I noticed last week, first of all, this is going to be ultimately good news, so you'll be startled by it, but it's okay news. Uh, last week, I noticed that uh, Ace and Brahmani, who always sit right over there, weren't here. And I wondered about that, because they're always here. And they weren't here because they were leaving their driveway to come here, and a car rode into their car. And uh, Brahmani was banged up a little bit, and but didn't need to be hospitalized. And Ace did. And uh, he had surgery the day before yesterday for um, some seriously broken bones around his pelvis and... Um, so he is recuperating successfully, and although he will be uh, not weight-bearing, so on crutches for three months, um, I'll see them later this afternoon. And uh, I went to the bookstore this morning since I thought you would all like to, together, uh, pool resources and get him a present because I'm going to go see him in the hospital. And then I saw this little... Uh, uh, thing <laughs> a snow globe made out of gold snow with a little Buddha sitting in the middle of it and I thought oh we'll give it to him and I mentioned that to the bookstore people and they said no I said we're going to take up a collection so it's not that big of a collection but they said Spirit Rock will give it to Ace as a present so I am taking this to Ace this afternoon so everybody can think a very good wish into this one, two, three think a wish not that we believe any <laughs> fanciful things no fanciful belief systems here but anyway we all thought a good wish into this and I'll take it to Ace this afternoon but um, hmm? he is in the hospital he is in the hospital he did have a surgery two days ago. It took a while to line up surgeons, and uh, and it was over the weekend. And so, but now he's finished with that, and he's recuperating, and uh, it'll be a while. So, really, you never know. We spent the whole morning talking about impermanence. You don't know, so we're not. Uh, it's always back to. Uh, Yes, I'll meet you next Tuesday if, as I leave the house, a tile does not fall. You can probably quote it for me. Cause I saw you about to quote it, Lynn. What is it? If, as I leave your house... I don't get run over. That's right. <laughs> I don't get run over by a carriage or a tile does not slide off the roof and hit me in the head. And uh, it's commonly called the Kierkegaard joke because Kierkegaard was said to have said that to one of his buddies with whom he met every week. And it's funny when you tell it to people because Kierkegaard was known for titles like Fear and Trembling and Existential, and one of the progenitors of the psychology called Existential Psychology was not known to be a joking type person, but that it's, uh, uh, it is a little bit funny. Uh, we'll see you next week if on the way but we live really in one big if it could always be otherwise so we'll talk more about that in a little while I'd like for us to sit uh, so I'll suggest a kind of uh, impermanence uh, meditation that we can sit with and I also want to remember to tell you because it looks like we're pretty much all assembled for today 
please come next week for sure and uh, bring a friend if, if you've been thinking about doing it because Kate Munger, who's here today, is going to, this is Kate Munger, is going to be here next week and Kate is the founder of the Threshold Choir of now many iterations all over the world, I think, of Threshold Choir. And she's bringing several members of her local people here. And the Threshold Choir comes and sings at the, in the bedsides in the room of people who are at the threshold of passing into the next whatever comes after this life. And uh, so she's coming and we'll talk a little bit, Kate and I, about her work. And, and then she and her uh, friends with whom she sings will stay in the back of us, so not looking at them, but we'll be here as if we are at thresholds, all of us with our eyes closed. So not looking, but just hearing. And they'll sing for us through our meditation period. So it'll be a period of sitting and listening and sitting and listening and sitting and listening. So I think it will be an extraordinary time to bring friends with you. And one of the people that I'll mention that kind of like to dedicate this sitting both to Asa's recovery and to the memory of my friend Francis Vaughn who died quite suddenly last Friday night. And if you did not know Francis Vaughn died and you knew her, I'm sorry to startle you with that news. Francis was... Um, a very well-known psychologist in the whole Bay Area and uh, really was president of the um, Association for Transpersonal Psychology. I think she was also president of the Humanistic Psychology Institute. She is author of a whole bunch of books. She's the wife of my friend Roger Walsh. And Five minutes before she had an aortic aneurysm, she was preparing hors d'oeuvres for a dinner with five friends. And she just suddenly died. And she has children and grandchildren, all of whom lived around, with whom she had good relationships. And she was in her 80s when she died, so she had a long and very fulfilling life. It's startling for the people that she leaves behind because it was so sudden. And I think to myself, it seems to me wonderful to be making hors d'oeuvres in the five minutes before you leave this world. So, but I'm thinking of her a lot. So we can think about her with every wish that you make for people who pass and uh, about Roger, who now has to readjust his life to live without her, and uh, about Ace and Brahmani, who are going to be recovering, and probably coming back here when he's transportable. So, so one of the things that um, 
is another way to sit quietly and attend to whatever comes up moment to moment because that's really what we're doing here. The instruction is always, let's just sit here or stand here or lie down here or walk back and forth. Let's just be here now, attending to what feelings arise inside moment to moment and what happens outside moment to moment. What's happening in the room, sounds around, what comes up in the mind, what thoughts arrive, what, what, what sights arrive, what smells arrive, what body sensations arise, and how the mind greets them all, thinking that really what we are uh, practicing, establishing here, is a mind that greets every moment with a warm um, and balanced attention. Oh, look what's happening now, look what's happening now, look what's happening now. Not clinically, ah, I got that, that was a sound, that was a this, that was a that. Just, this is fine. I am comfortable. This is happening. I'm startled. I'll take a breath. Now I'm not startled. Now I'm relaxed. Now I'm just here, and I'm just here, and I'm just here. Thoughts coming and going. Just what's going on, and how is the mind that greets what's going on? Particularly because we have been talking about impermanence. Particularly noticing what's here and that disappears. When I do that with my breath, I'm aware of a breath as arising, and then it's passing away. Then it's resting, and then here comes another breath, and then it's passing away. And here comes another breath, and it's passing away. And here comes a thought. And now it's gone, I don't even remember what it was. To rest in the coming and goingness of things. So we'll sit quietly. Resting in the coming and goingness of things.
this morning I'm thinking very much of my 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 friend Francis who died on Friday Saturday night and of her husband Roger who's missing her a lot and how many of her friends and um people whose lives she touched are thinking about her and I'm also thinking about the people in Puerto Rico who are having a really hard time um, getting ordinary needs met who else are you and I'm thinking of course of our friends Ace and Brahmini who I hope to see later today who are you thinking about
I'm also thinking about my uh, oldest living friend in the world who is uh, two years older than I am and we have been friends since I was four and he was six I don't know anybody longer than I know him and his family and uh, his first great-grandchild was just born and uh, I am rejoicing with him and with his wife and daughter and granddaughter and uh, all his family on everybody's good health. May all beings from all ends of this extraordinary experience of living on all ends and places of this experience of being aware of the brevity of our lives and the tenuousness of our lives in the great mystery of life unfolding may they be stopped in their tracks by awe about the whole thing and be kind to each other I'm just I'm just reflecting on I, uh, what I just said. I don't plan ever what I'm going to say. So somehow I open my mouth and it comes out. Sometimes I'm really struck by it. Uh, and what I thought about when I heard what I said about we should all experience a moment of awe. Well, I had prepared something to read to you, which is about recognizing that this whole thing is awesome, that we're alive. But uh, I just remembered a bit of a conversation that I had the other day with um, one of my sons who is himself a physician and talking about um, a friend of ours who's coming nearer to the end of uh, life and talking about are there things that you still want to do while you're still in this lifetime and uh, mobile and thinking what would I is there anything I feel like I haven't done I said no I really I mean there are lots of things I haven't done but um, it's all right with me you know I I I have not climbed Mount Kilimanjaro but I actually never wanted to (laughs) to do that um And then I found myself saying to him, I just uh, heard from uh, one of my friends who had just gotten back from uh, a a trip to Africa that included uh, some days on safari. And he said, would you like to do that? I said, no, no, actually, it sounded a little too hard. Like, uh, if you get up in the middle of the night in your tent and you need to use the 
tent to- the toilet tent. You can't just go. You have to call the guide so that they accompany you with a gun in case there's an, an, a lion hanging out at the, you know. And I think I am way past, uh, besides the, given the number, for old women, they get up more than once in a night. So the poor guy, you know, going back and forth. But then I, that, and the next moment I said, but you know, I bet I, I know some people who are old women like me. And they just got back from a safari where somehow they were at so, such a high-end safari set up that they actually don't have to get a guide to go to a, they somehow work that out. And, and I said it the other day, so just a fragment of a conversation. And he said, you want to do that? I said, I don't know, you know, but, but I, I, it was just a fragment of a conversation and totally not important and I forgot about it until I just said about may all beings be filled with that a sense of awe. And I thought, why did I want to do a thing like that? Why was I thinking about a safari? Because every time my friends tell me about it, I went on safari, they say, oh, you can't imagine how it is to look at a herd of giraffe. I thought, oh, a herd of giraffe. Or, oh, there are so many other things that are around the corner. I also just went to a performance of um, Electra at the, at the opera. And it was amazing. Anybody saw, heard Electra, was that not amazing, Nancy? Was well, just as good as a safari, wasn't it? <laughs> you can't pee during the opera. The opera is an hour and forty-five minutes long with no intermission. <laughs> so the fact that you didn't need to is also <laughs> neither did I, because I knew how long it was and I prepared myself for it. But it was awesome. But I'm just interested about not so much that, that but that the the thought, what is awesome? What provokes awe? A herd of giraffe, have you ever seen a herd of giraffe, Nancy? Be awesome. But how much awesome, you know? The uh, uh, Chinese acrobats are awesome. Cirque du Soleil is awesome. I guess when people do things that are way more amazing than most other people do them, like singers sing more amazing. Or when you see a herd of giraffe, the only thing that giraffe can do uh, in the way of uh, self-preservation uh, is they can run very fast. They don't have big teeth, they can't fight, but they can run fast like zebras. Did you, who read Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers? Do you know why zebras don't have ulcers? Who knows why zebras don't have ulcers? Nancy, you must know. You don't know? There's a book called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. They're pretty zen. Really, neurologically, they're wired so that, yeah, 
No, seeing a lion, they get a big shot of cortisol or whatever other is a stress hormone. But it triggers adrenaline so they can suddenly run tremendously fast, tremendously faster than lions. And they run and they outrun the lion. And they run and run and run until they don't smell lion anymore. And then they stop because there's no lion there. And very soon afterwards, if you check those, I guess it's cortisol levels, I'm not sure, maybe something else. In those zebras, I imagine you blow gun a zebra and then you do, I mean, somebody has done those tests. But their hormones go right away back to normal. And they're eating away and drinking away, munching. The book is Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. It's written by Robert Sapolsky, who has written that big book called Why We Behave the Way We Do. And, uh, and he said they do not immediately start thinking, what did that, why did that lion have it in for me? And <laughs> I shouldn't have gone in that district. I should have remembered that more lions live there than any place else. And I am so stupid having gone in a lion territory. All the things that we might possibly say to ourselves in those same situations, they forget about it and they just go on with their lives. The giraffes the same, yeah. I also read it and I was working uh, NICU, critical care. Yeah. actually wonderful to hear. I think uh, Professor Sapolsky would like to know that your book, cha- that his book changed your life. You could send him an email. He's at Stanford. I'm reading Behavior right now and I have grandkids and I'm reading about teenagers. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That the, the, His current book that I am reading called Behave says teenagers are not finished yet. <laughs> and that, first of all, with the brain developing... And what particularly is not finished is their ability to weigh risks appropriately. You know, that it might be dangerous to drive fast. It might be dangerous to drive having smoked dope or drunk alcohol. But a lot of accidents can happen to people, but not to me. You know, that they don't... That was the point that I I said that, you know, they... Nothing can ever happen to them, they feel. Immortal. I thought about that recently because I was, I, was, uh, I was 20 years old when my first child was born. And even given the fact that everybody here knows I'm a fairly fretful person, I never worried a second about that anything would go wrong with the pregnancy or me or my children or the delivery, or going home with a six-pound viable person to take care of with no experience whatsoever, and say, here, take this home and take care of it. (laughs) Ready, set, go, and I never worried. But I think it's because I was so young. I actually hadn't... Who knows? One of the things that I think about a lot is that the capacity for awe the capacity to say, wow, about being alive is actually what balances out our capacity for more and more deeper understanding of suffering 
and the fact that we're all in a precarious place, like the monk who's jumped over the cliff and hanging on a vine that I'm sure we talked about last week, and like the babies in the uh, newborn, teeny-weeny two- and three-pound babies that are trying to hold on and be alive, and their parents, and how frightened they are, and what a bond there is between them. And I remember touring the, the NICU nursery at Children's Hospital in Oakland with a friend of mine who was working there at the time, and I was so awed by the fragility of these teeny tiny beings that I was afraid to breathe the whole time that I was in that ward, lest I might breathe a germ into the air or something. I mean, you get so careful about them. The thing that I think about, um, I think about that, the, that same thing when I'm in um, ICU facilities or two weeks ago when I was with my friend Rachel in New York in a, in a kind of one upgrade from the ICU. You don't want to breathe, you don't want to talk loud. I often think to myself, in that moment that the whole world would think to itself, we are all so fragile. Everybody would behave themselves, lower their voices, not be saying terrible things to each other, or vilifying each other, or shouting. Realize one false move, and this whole delicate chain of life gets shattered. So I wanted to say this week, because I realized, speaking of it comes and it goes, that this is the one week in the year, that fall, Wednesday, that falls between the beginning of the new year in the Hebrew calendar, and the tenth day of the new year, and it's uh, the the um, the uh, intention of those ten days. Uh, the mandate for those ten days is to reflect on with whom have I not tidied up my relationships. I know from time to time I tell you about my friend, whose really elderly, late eighties mother died. Her brother came to visit her, who had not spoken to her in 30 years. They had something happen. One of the other remaining living brothers called that brother and said, listen, our sister is dying, you better go now. My friend who told me the story was in the room with her mother when the brother who had not seen her or talked to her in 30 years came to visit. I don't even remember what her mother's name is, so we'll call her Louise. The brother, the exchange, a strange brother came in the door and here is Louise in the bed and he said, um, they said hello, Louise said hello, he said, I'm sorry, Louise. And she said, I'm sorry too. That was it. And I find that a heartbreaking story. My friend told me that story. That for 30 years they couldn't say, I'm sorry. It's a really an easy thing to open your mouth and say, I'm sorry, Period. You don't even have to say, I'm sorry about what I did. You could say, I'm sorry we're not talking to each other. I'm sorry our relationship is busted. You think about the kinds of things that you forget, like life hangs on its string. If you are attached to the, I can, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forgive them as long as I live. If that's so important to you, the whole life is suddenly gone. And sorry, it's nice that that happened, but it can't take back 30 years. 
So I think to myself, and I pose it to you just because it's not a Jewish thing, it's a human thing to want to have a sense that there's nobody on my list that I couldn't say I'm in a good shape with. There's nobody that I... You got anybody on your list? To be able to say, I'm all right with this person. Somebody stopped me on the way. I'm just making sure that she's not here. Somebody stopped me. It would be all right because if she was here, I'd, you know, I'd say, can I tell the story? Someone I'm not going to name, I met coming out of a grocery store yesterday, who said, can I ask you a question? I'm not sure I know her from here or from of Shalom or from someplace else. Or, but she said, I really am working on that and I have one person on my list that I cannot forgive. So I, and I'm trying to do it. How can I forgive someone? So I, I was thinking maybe it was a political figure because a lot of us these days are having trouble. But uh, I'm not actually, uh, I'm not actually angry at particular political figures. I'm so sad. I'm really sad. I'm really sad. I'm, I, I, I really refuse to pollute my mind with anger about it because I don't want to. But I'm sad as anything and I am doing what I can to, to counter that sadness by action in the world. But currently not angry at anybody. She said, and she told me the circumstances. And what I said, which I've been mulling about ever since, because I hope it was enough, is I said, you know, I think that what keeps anger going all the time, there are two things. There's what's what's flaming it up and what could possibly mitigate it. And on the flaming upside, I think when we, that sense of I can't forgive so-and-so, is the story keeps coming up when I, when one thinks of that. Uh, you know, I can't forgive so-and-so because of da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And for myself, when I certainly have had people that I could not forgive, what it turned out for me when I relaxed enough to allow myself to know it is there was something about why letting that person come into my mind fully and looking at really what was that anger made out of. It's, it's always made out of something else like fear. I'm afraid of what that person might do to me again. I'm afraid that there are people like that in the world. I'm afraid that I didn't do everything that I could have done in that situation and part of the blame is mine. I'm humiliated about what I did, which caused them to do that. You know, did you ever, did you ever have a thought? Uh, I sometimes, I, it doesn't happen so much anymore because I don't have people in that category anymore. But I'd be on retreat and I would think of a certain thought about something going on in my life. And I think, oh, I don't want to remember that because I don't want to think about it. And I was so hoping that wouldn't come up in my mind. <laughs> did you ever have that? I wish I hadn't have thought that. That wrecks up my whole day. How will I, you know, I mean, there are thoughts that we don't want to accidentally think because I'm down the road to feeling bad. And what I'm really learning is that the only way with that is to think the thought, go down the road, not just think the road, but 
but think, feel the feeling that you don't want to feel about it. Because anger pushes it out of the mind. Anger, I'm not going to think about this person. For this, this, this. Say, so how do I feel when I think about this person? I feel frightened, I feel humiliated, I feel helpless. Uh, helpless is a big thing. I can't do anything about it. We feel that a lot when someone in our family is behaving in a way or doing in a way that we have the feeling, I certainly do, you know, that uh, I could give, just give them this advice, just tell them what to do. And, uh, I wonder how many of you have had adult children tell you, Mom, you're not on that committee anymore. <laughs> And the thing is, I'm not on that committee anymore. That's what's upsetting to me because I used to be on that committee. I used to be the committee. <laughs> now I'm not on the. I'm not the committee. I'm not on the committee. No one cares about it. it causes me pain. That's tough. Everybody laughing. How many people are laughing because they know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Somebody suggested to me, this might be a good time to pose this. Somebody suggested to me that we offer like a day long here at Spirit Rock or an afternoon long or something, a discussion sharing group for uh, mothers or parents, not necessarily mothers, parents of middle-aged children. How many people would be interested in such a thing like that? Parents of middle-aged children. But everybody in the group has to be a parent of a middle-aged child that they have some level of, not a hypothetical, I'm just taking this class to sit here. You have to come in with them. I see that there's a dozen people that could do that. Because you want so well for your child to do well and thrive. And it's so extremely painful when they don't. Well, I did notice all those people, so I'll come back when we, when we talk about it further. I'll think about that. So one way is to look at what it is. The, the, I once had somebody out of my heart for 10 years because I was so busy being mad at this person. Couldn't believe he had said certain thing about me. He didn't say it on the front page of the IJ. He said it in a letter to me. So I was the only one that knew about it, but it infuriated me so much that I avoided him for the longest time and he avoided me. We were formerly colleagues and friends. And one day I was on my way to a conference and I thought to myself he was likely to be there. And usually every time I thought to him about him, I thought, how could he have said that to me? And on that day I thought, how could he have said that to me? And then I thought, he said it about me because it's true. I thought, ah. Oh. <laughs> then I got to the place and I said hello, which I'd been saying as had he for all those years. But I must have said a different hello because he said, you want to have lunch? We had lunch, we had lunch, we had lunch, back and forth. Finally, we used to be you know, study buddies, friends. We'd get together and talk about books, have lunch. And he said, uh, 
I said, you know, we ought to talk about the fact that we didn't talk to each other for X many years. And I told that same story, and I said about the day that I realized that what you said about me, it was true. And he said, no, it wasn't. (laughs) And then he told me about how embarrassed he'd felt about having blurted that out, wrote it to me, and so impulsively, and how often in his life he had hurt himself and relationships by being impulsive about it. And we were both right, and we had both been wrong. And when I tell that story, people say, how come you didn't fix it up sooner? I mean, the both of you were in the business, business of all this truth and reconciliation and honesty. <laughs> because we didn't, that's all. It just took a long time. Sometimes it takes a long time. I have no idea how long we should mourn, how long we should grieve, how long... Everybody does different Everybody does different. The other reason I think, the other thing, being able to feel what's, what's in this anger that I won't let it go is one part of it. And the other part is to see around the story of my anger and my angst about it, there's a whole world. There's a whole universe, actually, that's quite inspiring. There are people who are singing Electra in a new way, the the rings the ring operas are coming to the coming to the San Francisco again this June. Uh, the moon is exactly the way it should be on the fifth day of a moon cycle. There's a bigger picture of amazingness. The signals from Saturn have now disappeared after X many years. I've forgotten how many years. They just turned off the other day, and they knew it would. I saw pictures of the um, uh, astronomers, astrophysicists, whatever they are, in a big laboratory saying to each other, okay, this is it, another 45 seconds of it beeping, and that's it. And they're all sitting and listening, and it beeps out and they can know exactly when it's going to do that. And this is happening, who knows how many light years away from us. People figured that out. And it ended just when it was supposed to end. Imagine. And people are doing surgery now, not even touching the person. They're over here operating some robotic stuff, and something is happening over here, and they're watching a TV screen. That's amazing. That's awesome. As to me, I know nothing else but miracles, whether I walk in the streets of Manhattan or dart my sight over the roofs of houses towards the sky or wade with naked feet along the beach just in the edge of the water or stand under the trees in the woods or talk by day with anyone I love or sleep in the bed at night with anyone I love or sit at the table at dinner with my mother or look at strangers opposite me riding in the car, or watch honeybees busy around the hive of an August forenoon, or animals feeding in the fields, or birds, or the wonderfulness of insects in the air, or the wonderfulness of the sundown, or of stars shining so quiet and bright, or the exquisite, delicate, thin curve of the new moon in May, These, with the rest, one and all, are to me miracles. 
To me, every hour of the night and dark is a miracle. Every inch of space is a miracle. Every spear of grass, the frames, limbs, organs of men and women, and all that concerns them, all these, to me, are unspeakably perfect miracles. Do you know who that is? Whitman. That's Walt Whitman. How about this one? Statistically, the probability of any one of us being here is so small that you think the mere fact of existing would keep us all in a contented dazzlement of surprise. We are all alive against the stupendous odds of genetics, infinitely outnumbered by all the alternates who might, except for luck, be in our places. Even more astounding is our statistical improbability in physical terms. The normal predictable state of matter throughout the universe is randomness, a relaxed sort of equilibrium with atoms and their particles scattered around in an amorphous muddle. We, in brilliant contrast, are completely organized structures squirming with information at every covalent bond. Add to this the biological improbability that makes each member of our own species unique. Each of us is a self-contained, freestanding individual labeled by specific protein configurations at the surfaces of cells, identifiable by whorls of fingertip skin, maybe even by special medleys of fragrance, you'd think we would never stop dancing. Wow. That's Lewis Thomas. Lewis Thomas. Walt Whitman died in 1892. Lewis Thomas died in 1993. Both of these poems or reflections on the astonishing miracle that we're alive, not what is happening, but that it's happening, that it's happening is astonishing. That uh, I love that line about we should be in a contented dazzlement of surprise. You know, when a baby gets born out, even that you know it's going to be a boy or a girl, which you now know, you don't know what it's going to look like. It's got its own little face. But right after it's born, its face is familiar to you. An hour later, its mother loves that little face or knows that little face or is delighted with that little face or at least recognizes <laughs> that, that that particular face is just like Uncle Joe. <laughs> Which is even more amazing that Uncle Joe's little face should make it into your womb in some way. <laughs> And then how that all shoot, comes out. Everybody comes out looking like their forebears in some kind of mysterious, coded way. They're all the way... Do you ever think that how DNA works? It's an amazing mystery. It just transfers the code and it comes out again in a new way. By the way, I, what I'm reading to you from is the uh, Rosh Hashanah prayer book in my synagogue. And it's unusual to find a biologist and a poet in a prayer book. 
but not in a contemporary prayer book. It's not unusual. And all of these, uh, this is a whole book, and uh, the community does not read aloud together the whole entire book, but they could. And there, there wasn't anything that, um, this was very interesting to me, there, wasn't, there isn't anything that you can, can't, that a person of any religious tradition or none couldn't read comfortably because the thing with contemporary, um, I think contemporary religion uses some words that are metaphoric and some stories that are allegorical. But doesn't say anything that everybody can't say. Um, what is the name of your temple? Rodef Shalom, right here on in, uh, on uh, uh, whatever that is in Terra Linda, San Pedro Road. San Pedro Road. Mm-hmm. And um, if you came this Saturday, they would be in the Civic Center all day long. And if you do not belong to the congregation, they'll ask you when you come, are you a member of this congregation? Partly, I think, they, they do that um, because of security reasons these days. But you could always say, I'm not, but I'm Sylvia Borstein's guest. They let you in, that's fine. Uh, I took my... Um, I took the the my... There's no word for this relationship. My grandson's wife's mother to uh, services with me on Wednesday night and Thursday. My grandson's wife's mother is Ecuadorian and visiting from Ecuador. Her English is fluent. Uh, she doesn't read Hebrew. But this prayer book, is, uh, when it has Hebrew prayers, has transliterated Hebrew. And I didn't say anything about don't feel daunted or don't feel you need to sing along. But she did. She can read transliterated English. So she did. And she said, this is wonderful. This says all kinds of great things. And her relationship to religion is warm. And she, uh, my grandson was married to her daughter in a very imposing Catholic, Roman Catholic church in Quito. She's fine with going with me. I really enjoyed that very much. I wanted to read you one more reading from there. This is a central prayer, and it's pretty much translated directly from the Hebrew. This is not... uh, This is not... um, uh, an interpretation of it. Contemplating this new year, this we know, some of us will live and some of us will die. Some of us will die young and some very old. Some by water and some by fire, some by sword, some by beast, some by hunger and some by thirst, some by plague and some by earthquake, some by stoning, some by strangling. Some of us will feel at ease, some of us will be restless. Some will have peace of mind, some will have strife. Some will be tranquil, some will be tormented. Some will be raised high, some will be brought low. Some will have riches, others will be impoverished. Even so, the way we act, the way we speak, the way we meet divinity in ourselves and in others 
These things have great power to make our lives matter. Therefore, let the wind fill us with urgency for life. Let dreams give birth to justice and goodness. Let us glimpse the truth as we attach ourselves to hope. Who could not say that, really? On any day, who by fire, who by water, who by this, who by that. And uh, actually it's a very principal part of the sermon, the service, and the cantor sings that out in a great booming voice. And uh, uh, in uh, 1960, 1955, in the fall of 1955 when I was married, we moved to a new neighborhood and we didn't have a local synagogue that we were affiliated with. And so we went to uh, Holy Day services at the hospital at which my husband was doing his internship. And they had a big room, probably they emptied out the cafeteria, that they could wheel in people in their sick beds into some main room. And this is well before television and closed circuit TV and all that business. So he came to a hospital service and he has all these people in in hospital, in bed. And uh, the focal point of the service is who by fire, who by this year, who will live and who will die. And who by fire and who by water and who by plague. So it's in some way it's apocryphal you know it's all a different way those are actually the words in Hebrew we don't have so many plagues but you could make that more modern and I remember looking around at this principally very old group of people lying in beds hospital beds being wheeled in listening to the words they'd listened to all their life and who's going to die this year and who not and that's true for us every year it's true for us when we're young or old that getting old is not a... Wherever you are, I thought about that when we talked about impermanence last week. And then I got home and um, my friend Jashoda called, who often comes here on Wednesdays, and says, uh, you know, Brahmini's in the hospital with Ace. And I, that's why we all weren't there this morning. So, you don't know who by fire, who by water. The point is not to fill the mind with dread. The point is to say, what am I going to do while I'm here? What am I doing now? Can't do anything other than that. The whole issue of... um, Who got this in the mail yesterday? This is Lion's Roar. And the Lion's Roar issue is on death. It says, death is the greatest teacher... I thought about whether I was going to read you the prayer book or whether I was going to read you Ajahn Shah, who was Jack's teacher. Where is the Ajahn Shah thing? Ajahn Shah. Here it is. Here is Ajahn Shah. In Thailand. It says, as soon as we're born, he says, conditions are impermanent and unstable. Having come into being, they disappear. Having arisen, they pass away. And yet everyone wants them to be permanent. This is foolishness. As soon as we're born, we're dead. Our birth and our death are just one thing. It's like a tree. When there's a root, there must be twigs. When there are twigs, there must be a root. 
You can't have one without the other. It's a little funny to see how at a death people are so grief-stricken and distracted, fearful and sad, and at a birth how happy and delighted. It's delusion. No one has ever looked at this clearly. I think if you really want to cry, then it's better to do this when someone's born. (laughs) Actually, it's not unique to Ajahn Chah. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, it's, it's a rumination on... Uh, the day uh, it, that fame and fortune and whatever is empty, and it, that one line, uh, the day of death is a happier than the day of birth. Um, my grandfather used to quote that line a lot. My grandfather was not a sage and actually illiterate, but he knew that particular line, and he said in his somewhat broken English, the day of the dying, no, the day of the borning is sadder than the day of the dying which I thought was a weird thing for him to say when I was a child. And he lived very long. Uh, he lived almost to 100, actually, in all his full um, memory and all of that. But um, he had a very um, balanced view of life. That You know, life was difficult, but you just did it. So my grandfather and Ajahn Chah, the day of the morning is sadder than the day of the dying. Anyway, that's a little creepy, I think. But uh, (laughs) Don't think a lot. Just think. This is the way things are. It's your work, your duty. Right now, nobody can help you. There's nothing that your family and your possessions can do for you. All that can help you now is correct awareness. So understand this point that all people, all creatures are about to leave. When, people, when beings have lived in appropriate time, they go their way. The rich, the poor, the young, the old, all beings must experience this change. To put it simply, impermanence is the Buddha. If we see an impermanent phenomenon really clearly, we'll see that it's permanent in the sense that its sub- subjection to change is unchanging. This is the permanence that living beings possess There's a continual transformation from childhood through youth to old age and that very impermanence, that that nature to change is permanent and fixed. If you look at it like that, your heart will be at ease. I remember to mention here, so you may have heard me mention before, I had a friend whose elderly aunt was in a nursing home and... uh, among the, her faculties that were deteriorating, she lost the faculty for speech. Um, in fact, she spoke English, but she lost all her words. And she remembered two words which she must have liked the sound of because her two words were temporarily and unexpectedly. <laughs> and when people came to visit, she knew, you know, she could sit up in a chair and people would sit and they'd talk to her. And periodically she'd say one of her two words, periodically. No, temporarily and unexpectedly. And you could either say those are the only two words my aunt remembers or you could say this was the sage of these Bronx or something <laughs> because uh, everything is temporarily and everything that you... Notice, whoa, look at that. It's unexpectedly. Brahmini and Ace were on their way here. Unexpectedly, someone drove into the side of them. 
I'll see you next week if a tile from the roof does not fall down on me or and I don't get run over by a wagon. Here's a little bit more. This is Judy Leaf, who's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. The closer you look, talking about don't hang on. So what do we have to hang on to, really? Our story is not that solid. It's always being revised and rewritten. Likewise, our body is not one solid, continuous thing. It, too, is always changing. If you look for the one body that is you, you can't find it. The closer you look, the less solid this whole thing seems. When we investigate our actual experience here and now, moment by moment, we see how fleeting and dynamic it is. As soon as we notice a thought, a feeling, a sensation, it's already happened. Isn't that true? When you actually, when you think about it, when you're doing mindfulness meditation, you know, really as a contemplation, you're sitting here and you're noticing, oh, that a thought arose and passed away, passed away. It already did. You're already like in the next moment, remarking on the previous moment, uh, they're really close together. But it's it's all vanishing all the time. Uh, you know, suddenly I remember, I, I, as I was reading you the part about as soon as you're born, it, you're dead. Uh, I remember reading somebody else who, some Zen story about uh, someone who gets offered a, 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 a teacup that's a very uh, precious one from a special time. And the person is loath to take it, but he said, because he said, I, you know, it could fall, it could break. And the teacher says to him, in my mind, that cup is already broken. That's the same as when, we, when we're born, we're already dead. We are on a trajectory. To, it's, a, it's a little, when you think about it that way, we are overlooking the fact that between the borning and the dying is the whole of living, which really is when you think about it, amazing, from a six-pound baby that someone gave me and said, here it is, take it home, take care of it. Uh, the six, that six-pound baby has gray hair that's thinning and in, is 60 years old and had an aortic valve replacement last year. Who could have known that? And 50 billion events happened in and around him in that period of time, like like in me, and uh, I, I'm thrilled that my next door neighbor is, has a great grandchild, because now you know I see Ira and his daughter who looks like him in certain ways, and the granddaughter who I know who has some of his traits and of, of his wife's and her parents, of course, and now here's this baby. He's probably got some of Ira's genetics in there, just like my grandchildren have some of mine, not all of mine, everybody else mixed in. And that I think to myself, you know, when I'll be gone, my genes will be somewhere else in some other people. When um, my friend Noemi, who was um, the mother of the woman who married my son Peter. There is a word in Yiddish for the person who is your opposite in-law. You don't have to say my son's mother-in-law. 
there's a that's it yeah so my machatenista Noemi Fernandez uh, died two or three years ago now and the last time we were together we were looking at a photo album of the wedding of her daughter to my son 35 years ago and uh, then when it came time to leave and uh, since she lived in Southern California it was clear that probably I wasn't going to see her again in this lifetime and she knew it and I knew it and I am thinking what do you say to somebody that is alive but you know you're not going to see them again and what I said was which I'm very happy about and I hope someone says that to me in the right time is you know um, years from now when nobody we know is here your genes and my genes are going to be walking around together and somebody that we haven't met yet and uh, that will, you know, be a little bit like us. But we'll be walking around in somebody together. Your genes, my genes. So I'm very happy for Ira's grandbaby. There's one more thing I wanted to tell you out of this death issue. Did you ever hear of a death cafe? Yeah? You heard of a death cafe. Are there death cafes in San Francisco, Nancy? Yeah? Huh? Paulden has one. She has a death cafe. Paulden has a death cafe. You want to talk about it? Or tell I haven't been there. I just know that she has one. Who's been to one? Nancy? No. I know. What is it? Okay, here's a death cafe. Um, people come to a place there are 5,000 death cafes at least since 2011 in Canadian towns American towns in uh, New Zealand in Crete in Senegal in Iceland Um, we had pushed the subject of death to the sidelines said the late John Underwood creator of the worldwide death cafe movement We had taken real death and outsourced it to the professionals. Instead of hiding death and leaving it to the priests and the funeral home directors, death cafes normalize mortality. They are also, pardon the pun, living proof of the contention that the closer we are to death, the less we feel it, and that death can always be one of our greatest teachers. Strictly non-profit, what stays in the, what's said in the death cafe stays there. People have food and drink and they, well, it's like, a, it's like any kind of a shared cause meeting. The leaders welcome everyone, explain the etiquette, and the attendees break into small groups and discuss death. In the end, everyone reconvenes and shares their conversation in the Everyone has the right to speak in the voice of their particular religious tradition or in the case of atheists or agnostics, the absence of religious tradition without having to defend or debate it. It's not a place where you can get information about putting your affairs in order or how to organize your funeral. It's just really about how do you feel about this. And pretty much everything else death-related goes. Suicide, near-death experience, funeral rites, are you emotionally prepared for your own death? 
What are your deathly fears and uncertainties? There was a film a couple of years ago. Oh, who will remember the name of it? It, uh, it, 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 uh, by the way, wait, I'll tell you, tell you. But it's about a man who uh, plans for his, he's sick and he's dying of some sort of a cancer. He's in a hospital in Canada. Because it, that gives it away. It's also a little bit spoofy about the Canadian uh, national health. Uh, but he organizes a party of all of his friends coming on to when he's actually dying. I don't know in the end if he just coincidentally dies the next day or he takes some sort of a drug to help him die the next day. But he has a party, and people come from all over the world to his party. That are friends of his that he invites, including several ex-wives and ex-friends and everybody that's been in his life. And they come to this wonderful. I mean, it's not a party with paper hats or you know, not that kind of a birthday party. But it's actually a party celebrating his love for all these people because he can't just drop in from the other end of the world. So the ex-wives and the ex-people in his life come. I really want to remember the name of it because it's very, very good. I'll try to... Oh. Is it the one where he is trying to find somebody to take his doll? No, that's the big one. Okay. No, it's not the one about the dog. It's, it's one where his... Is he in the hospital? He's in the hospital. Yes. And his son is organizes the top floor of the hospital to look like a... Okay, now we're on a roll, Susan. The son organizes with the hospital personnel. Okay, Sue, how about it? What was it? He's really in a great mood, and his friends are good, and they're, they're saying the right things. And it's a two-word title... Mm. let's see who by next week has figured out what it is but it starts in with a scene in a Canadian hospital that's so overcrowded that there are people lying on gurneys in the hall and that we remember it and it's something like uncomfortable strangers or it's a two ah (laughs) something strangers something 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 Okay, that's the prize. You come next week, we'll tell you. We won't sleep. We'll follow, we'll follow it up. I think that Canadian, it was made in Canada, I think. Uh, anyway, now something like Uncomfortable Strangers or something, something, Otherworldly, da, da, da. Anyway, we'll find it. But... Uh, that's what these death cafes are about. I think people are starting to do, this is my, my, my thought on this, I think that without death cafes, this was just a death cafe. We talked a little bit about, we talked a lot about death today. Um, the only thing I didn't do is I didn't bring uh, my copy of Report to Greco by uh, Nikos Kazantzakis, the same man who wrote Zorba, the Greek. In the beginning of Report to Greco, which is autobiographical, Kazantzakis is writing about his grandfather's death, 
and uh, in uh, uh, some Greek uh, uh, rural area. And he said, we all went up the mountain. We got called up the mountain. The grandfather was dying. And he remembers being a small boy and going up the mountaintop where the grandfather was dying. And uh, he said, my grandfather had asked to be carried outside of the farmhouse, and so he died outdoors. And he was giving instructions till the last minute. I wish I had the book. I'll, bring, I'll try to remember to bring it. Where he said, uh, after I'm gone, first of all, on the funeral rites, and uh, when you invite people to the funeral, do not skimp on the uh, food that you put out to serve <laughs> at the funeral meal. Be very generous in the food that you put out. And take very good care of the animals because you just need to remember that they're just like people except with other clothing on them. Oh. And uh, he gives his, uh, where are the grandchildren? Put my hand on their head and give them some sort of a benediction. And then he said, uh, turn me around so I can see the sunset. And I turn him around. And he says, okay, the sun is setting. Poof, I'm out of here. And dies. And I just like that so much. I don't know which part I like, the part where he said, Be ve- take good care of the animals. They're just like people, only with different clothing on the outside. And don't skimp on the funeral. But then you live until you die, and you really are in charge of yourself. I, last week I was feeling, at one point, quite helpless about what was going on in the world and quite, I think I was even that when I was here on Wednesday morning, really depressed on how things were going. And one of the lines in the liturgy uh, for taking stock of one's life and if, if in case you're feeling dismay about where the, your life is, where the world is, the three things that you can do is you can the three words they use are Hebrew words and they mean to return and to uh, intend and to uh, be gracious in generosity. And I thought to myself, those are instructions for mindfulness. This is how I feel. I'm telling the truth. I really feel bummed out about how things are. I really intend to be even more vigorous in my intention to purify my own heart and mind and to spread that message as much as I can. And I was thinking about the generosity business. I was thinking, in a moment, why would generosity be right? Actually, in the sense of generous giving. And I thought, well, in in the moment of generous giving, you don't feel helpless because you're really doing something else. So I have three, um, I'm sure I've told you, that the three charities that I most like to support are the ACLU and uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which has been helping immigrants since the late 1800s. They were helping immigrants originally because they were helping immigrant Jews but now they say, well, we don't have so much, we don't have that problem of immigrant Jews needing help. Now we are helping, we're not helping immigrant Jews, we're helping immigrants because we are Jews. And that one of the things we do is donate. So I did my three donations and I felt much better. And every once in a while, 
You could just stop and make three donations and feel better because you don't feel helpless. And the thing about being dispirited is you feel it's useless, nothing works. But it doesn't, it's not true that nothing works. It might not work to succeed in the way that I wanted to as fast as I wanted to. But it, it succeeds immediately in making me feel better. We need to go, I need to go too. So everybody wants to uh, shout out something for Ace, he's going to hear this recording. Why don't I say one, two, three, and you can all shout out something about Ace, get better or something, and then I'll ring the bell. One, two, three. Okay. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>